I want to invite you now to Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read the entirety of the passage, and while you're making your way there, maybe I'll give you a little bit of an update or a, a recap. As is our practice, at least over the last several months, we've been walking through together as a group of people the, through the Mark, through, through the Gospel of Mark. That is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, as told by Mark, a, a very close eyewitness to Jesus and and ends up being one of the best friends of the Apostle Peter, such that much of what he tells us about who Jesus is is also shaped by the way that Jesus interacted with Peter. Now, this is a a beautiful account for us because this means Mark, like a good friend, just like any other dude, has no problem throwing his friends under the bus, right? And so Mark regularly points out the ways in which Peter specifically, as well as the other apostles, so that we'll see that Peter specifically and the other apostles regularly did not get it. Even though they were right next to Jesus in close proximity to Jesus, they regularly missed out on who Jesus was, as if to be an encouragement for Mark to his church made up of Romans, who at that time were beginning to experience a great deal of persecution, so that they would remember and know that sometimes when it's difficult, sometimes we don't get it. We're not that far off the mark. In fact, we have a lot in common with the people who follow Jesus regularly. And Jesus, in patience and mercy, asks probing questions and tells things to us that we would eventually see him for who he is. For the last few chapters, Mark has told us that Jesus made a beeline into Jerusalem. And in the last several chapters of this entire book, Mark slows down his story to tell us the last week of Jesus' life leading up to the point where he will die on a cross and a Gentile, an outsider, a man who actually put him to death, a a Roman soldier will say, you certainly were the Son of God. And so we're in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with others about the temple, about the religious authority, and about the symbol of their religious authority, namely the temple, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, that is Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child 
And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, not, as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May the words of my own mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to God as we open up His Word, especially into a place that is fraught with danger and full of imagery that is perplexing and enigmatic. And Jesus tells us a story about the future. All of chapter 13 essentially gives us a discourse, one of the last, in fact, of Jesus' long texts or last discourses 
for the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. The last time Jesus sat down and had this many words of teaching in a row was when he spoke to his disciples the parable of the sower and then later explained it. The rest of the time, Mark tends to run really quickly. But this, we have the culmination of this great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and the explanation and some of the pictures that he chooses to communicate what that will be like alongside a parable about a fig tree and a parable about a master who leaves his servants in charge while he goes away. And so we see that the end of the age is illustrated for us. So I want to teach you a couple of things, maybe teach you the, the, the crux of this text, the force of this text, maybe walk through it together, and then see what exactly there is for us maybe today. I, I would argue this is just like every other, go- every other chapter in the Gospel of Mark. There is more here than anyone sitting uh, could begin to expound. And so instead of pulling everything apart, because there are so many images here, so many pictures here that we cannot possibly run through them all. So I, what I want to do is maybe give you a, a guide, maybe kind of a course of, of action to take, and then we'll read through it and kind of see how this unfolds. You see, because the end of time, we, we usually refer to as eschatology. So Jesus is giving a prophetic word, somewhat apocalyptic word, about eschatology. You don't have to know that word. You don't have to memorize it, but you do have to know what it means. Namely, words about the end of time, the end of an age. So one age ends and another age begins. And the end of one signifies the beginning of another. The imagery here we see of birth pains showing that there's something coming ahead. Something is coming to be. And here is the symbol and signs of that reality that's on its way here. And so we have regularly language of eschatology. Jesus specifically simply rewords a prophecy that Daniel spoke toward the last half of the story of Daniel. The first half of the story of Daniel is about Daniel, the lion's den, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Young men who stood up for their faith were persecuted for it, but then in the end God delivers them. And as a result of God delivering them, Daniel gives out a prophecy, a scary one. The ones where we tend to think like, I don't know, the end of times will come and it will look like Apache helicopters or, or some sort of horseman of the apocalypse. And Jesus jumps right in this line of speaking and teaching. And he begins to expound upon the end times. You see, this age will culminate in a time of trouble such that the world has never known, according to verse 19. And this age will end in the glorious appearing of Jesus himself. This isn't new. If you'll remember, Jesus entered into Jerusalem kind of like a conquering king, but in a humble and and enigmatic way. Instead of coming on a horse as a conqueror, he comes in as a humble, he comes in on a humble colt that's never been ridden before as a way of foreshadowing that one day Jesus will return. So Jesus begins to speak specifically about that, that we are to take care, to take heed, that whenever he will come, he will find us at our duty ready to greet him. The age that's coming is going to be marked by religious apostasy, verse 6. Rumors of wars, verse 7. Upheavals of earthly kingdoms in verse 8. Earthquakes, famines, trouble of all sorts in verse 8 as well. There'll apparently be the gospel being made clear for all the nations according to verse 10. But people will disregard the law in verse 12 and there will be manifestations of hatred toward people who speak out the gospel. It's meant to be a picture of what is to come and what's going to happen. A picture of the future 
as it is coming. And this is why this is referred to as an eschatological discourse. Jesus talking about the end of time. So here we go. Let's stop for just a minute. It all seems very foreign to us and very different. What I want to maybe show you for just a minute is this. This is actually something quite common. In fact, this is something that we do on a regular basis. All right? Let me begin in a maybe shallow sense. My mother. Uh, My mother was an apocalyptic prophet. Maybe yours was, I don't know, but my, mo- my mother regularly engaged in prophecy about what appeared to be the end of all time. You ever been there? Your mom do this? If you don't clean up your room and then insert prophetic apocalyptic prophecy. Have you ever heard this one? Like, and, it, and it sounds like the end of the world. Like, if you don't put that down, I just, I don't even know. I'm going to lose my mind, right? Is it like, whoa, this is, whoa, it just got serious. Like, really? Or like, you know, if you, listen, if you, if you don't fix that, or if you don't stop doing what you're doing, you stop hitting your brother, then I will, and this, I don't want to like cast my mother in, in an awful light. I, I don't want to make light of any sort of abuse, but my mom was, again, this is apocalyptic prophecy. It's not really, it's a symbol. And so like, I, I will, I will beat, I will snatch you bald headed is one, one thing they would say. Like, I will. Um, my, my mother-in-law does this, I'll pinch your head off, right? Well, I don't even know what that means, right? Or, or I will, I mean, you've heard this, right? I will, I, will, I, will, I will send you to get a switch, right? Or I, I, there's this, like, this, this impending doom, like the end of history is on the way. And you're meant to think that like, serious, awful consequences are on the way. This may just be my mother. I don't know if you've had this. Maybe you have a stepmom. Stepmoms are really good at this, right? But, like, but mother figures are... I tend to engage in prophetic, apocalyptic prophecy. And they'll say things like, well, you wait. You wait till your father gets home. Right? Like, something's coming back. Did you, did you catch this? Now, a side note here, this is why a couple of the college friends of mine, we got together. Um, I, I just can say this about my own mom and honor her in this way on the wake of Mother's Day. Um, but, like, my mother was not the kind of person who was like, wait till your father gets home to enforce the law. My mom was like, I'm going I'm to whip you now, and then you wait till your father gets home, and he's going to do it again. Uh, and so, so one of our top lists, and I encourage you, uh, single guys, I, did, I would put this at the top of the list. My, my friends and I, we would pray for, we're looking for a woman who could whip our kids. Right? You get what I'm saying when I say that? I'm trying, I'm trying to help you out here. Okay? I'm just trying to help you. I'm looking for a woman who could whip my kids. And that means there's a woman, a virtue of character, amen, women, who can stand up for themselves, right? So this, this, is, this is my mother, this is the apocalyptic prophecy that my mom would engage in on a regular basis, kind of like something's going to happen, your father's going to come home, and I want you to see this is a regular thing, but I want you to understand how we're meant to interpret that. So when my mom said this apocalyptic prophecy, this eschatological discourse of, you better do that or else something awful will happen, here's what I didn't do. I didn't stop and begin to dissect the possible outcomes of her prophecy, right? I didn't stop and go, really, mom? You're going to lose your mind? Really, mom? You're just going to lose it, huh? You're just going to crazy. Really? That's what's going to happen? You you don't do that, okay? That's a hot tip for you. Don't do that. Don't, Don't break down that. That's not the purpose of the prophecy. The purpose of the prophecy about the possible outcome in the future is meant to reorient what you believe and think about right now. It's meant to shape what you see, think, and know, and do now. So when my mom said, put that down or else, it wasn't my job to understand completely the or else. It was my job to see that possible outcome in the future as a negative thing and do the thing she told me to do. Why is this important? 
Because whether we're in Mark chapter 13 or on some sort of crazy trek through Revelation, literally it means apocalypse, which means revealing. When we're on some sort of a trek through there, it is our temptation to begin to parse out the possible outcome and completely ignore what that prophecy is meant to shape about right now. And in the same way that I would not dare, like when my mom says, I'm, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, wait till your father gets home, he's going to beat you silly, right? I mean, that's, that didn't actually happen. But if I just stopped and said, really, is that really going to happen? That would have made things worse. Instead, I was meant to hear that as a warning and then shape my thoughts and actions accordingly. So also Jesus engages in a pseudo-apocalyptic discourse here in which the most important thing we see is not necessarily the details of how the future will unfold, but instead to see what it is that we are supposed to think about and be aware of right now. And in this passage, there are two key things. Did you catch them? Be alert, be awake, do not fall asleep, right? Did you hear that language? And do not be misled, do not be deceived. So be alert, do not be deceived. So if you get anything out of the pictures that Jesus paints, you're supposed to see that this has implications for now, namely that we ought to be alert. We know that Jesus is coming back, so we don't sit around and try to parse out what that will look like, but instead we are alert because we never know when it might happen. And we are not deceived. That doesn't mean we have to have all the answers about the future. It just means that we don't listen to anybody else who tries to parse it out. We know that Jesus alone is going to reveal that to us. Why is this important? I believe we do this on a regular basis. Anytime people, anytime like we have like a casting of vision about an about a apocalyptic eschatological ending, there's actually something they're trying to teach us. And I want to show you, I don't want you to be afraid of the Bible, I want you to see that this is a regular thing. So I want to walk you through some of my favorite apocalypses, okay? This is not going to be an exhaustive list, we don't have time, but I want to share with you some of my favorite apocalypses, uh, and you don't necessarily have to like them, but I really like them. So anyone seen this one? The Day After Tomorrow. This is a movie about, uh, and, and this, I'm going I'm to engage, engage you a little bit, I want you to speak out. Um, so, so do you, you know, who has seen this movie? Who knows this movie, right? Okay, so those of you who raise your hand, it's about like winter comes, but what's really the lesson now? Do you remember what they're really trying to preach at you to do? What was it really about? Maybe, yeah, but specifically it was a knock on global warming. Remember that, right? If you don't start taking care of climate change, that's what's going to happen, right? The, the Statue of Liberty, under, I don't know how much snow it would take for that to happen, but like, but like that was, it, it was like this, this alternate future that isn't real, and isn't, it hasn't happened yet, but it's as if to paint a picture of a possible reality, why? So that you would think more critically about the environment and global warming. Did you get it? So it, just, it wasn't just about what happens when things snow over. There's a layer upon layer upon layer of different things going on, from relationships to global warming. I don't know if you caught this. It was like, be nice to immigrants because whenever global warming hits, we're going to move to the global south. Did you catch this? There's layer upon layer upon layer of lesson. And so it's not really that you're supposed to sit around and wonder if it's going to snow over. It's meant to spark thinking about what you ought to do now. It's one of my favorite ones. This kind of started, I would argue, like maybe started the whole genre of, of zombie movies. 28 days later, okay? So this is about a guy who wakes up from a coma and this epidemic has utterly taken over everything. And so here, there's a few different layers here. What, what was this movie really about? What, were they, what, were they, what did they want us to really be afraid of or know about? 
Remember? This was controversial. It really was supposed to make you afraid of medical things and military things. Right? So it was as if to say, don't put your hope and trust in medicine. It's going to kill you. We're not going to make it. Um, there's, apparently there's a strain that's going to come that's going to like, you know, outshine all of medical practices and it's going to kill everybody. And then in that apocalyptic, in that kind of the apocalyptic narrative, it exposed like military power, totalitarian dicta- dictatorship. Did you catch that? So the military comes in and starts to abuse people as if to kind of say, this is what you need to be aware of. You get it? So it's not just about a disease. It's about something bigger. It's about something going on in the culture, something that they want you to be aware of. This is a personal favorite. Got remade this last year. Don't necessarily recommend it unless you want your eyes to bleed. But Mad Max. Okay? So what was this about? Does anyone shout out this one little three-letter word this was about when it came out in the late 70s during a crisis, 70s and 80s? What was it about? Anyone? Gasoline. Oil. Right? So there's this apocalyptic future in which the, the thing, because at this time, remember, this is the late 70s, 80s, there's a gas shortage right here, okay? And so they made this post-apocalyptic movie about the harms of whenever we run out of gas, that's when it's going to get crazy, right? And so whoever has the oil has the power. And if you have oil, you can build a, 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 an awesome car to kill people and all that good stuff and defend yourself and fight evil, right? And so it's, it's a weird story about a possible future, but ultimately it was meant to spark people's thinking. Some of these are more obvious than others about oil, about fossil fuels. Here's one of my other favorite ones. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Remember this one? What fear was this supposed to expose, right? This is a possible outcome. And what are we supposed to be afraid of? The machines. Technology. One day, that technology you're depending on it's going to kill you. And if you don't slow down with your development of technology, it's going to create a mind of its own. It's going to become prescient or self-aware. And once they become self-aware, that's the end of it. Skynet takes over, right? This, this is what we're supposed to think about. It, it isn't just, I mean, it's really cool because stuff gets blown up. And all, I, I mean, I love, I love all the stuff that goes with it. But in the end, it, it's not all that it's about. I would argue there's another one that's my personal favorite that's along the same lines as Terminator, and that's The Matrix, Right? Imagine an alternate reality in which you don't even know what's real. Like it, it goes all the way past a war with technology, all the way to the point where technology has won, technology has taken over, it controls your brain, and, and the hero is the one who gets unplugged from technology and sets others free. And it's awesome because they like weave a pseudo-gospel in the middle of a fear of a post-apocalyptic future where technology attacks us. I love it. Just Neo is Jesus. Neo is Jesus, okay? Write that down. You'll just, you're going you're gonna to need, that's a spoiler alert. Neo is Jesus, okay? And then, as if that isn't enough, my personal favorite, because apocalyptic culture is not just for adults, there's Wally, which is Disney's attempt to show that thinking about the end of the world isn't just for grown ups, it's also for kids. It's also their first attempt to make a movie without killing parents. Right? So this is a particularly, this is a noteworthy film of theirs, but, but what was the lesson here? What, what, if you were to guess what it is that Wally was warning us about now, throw out a word. Consumerism, right? Because the things that we are consuming are taking up so much space that it begins to take over the world. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Like, I mean, it's about recycling. It's about preservation because there's, there's these things of, in consumerism that destroy not only the earth, but it begins to destroy the people. And they become heavy, way overweight, and then they, they're like on these floating lazy boy things, eating all the time, right? And then they, it, it, don't worry, it ends good. They come back to gravity. and They're like, this is amazing. And they come back to the earth. Why? Because 
a conservationist save the world, right? A little bitty wally, little bitty thing. And, and oh, there's also the subtext, you too can find love even if you're a robot, right? Make you, Disney can make you cry about anything, even two robots that apparently love one another. A little bit of Terminator, a little, little bit of Cinderella all rolled into one. Thank you for that, Disney. I really appreciate it. But, but the guy who saves the day is the guy who like cleans up the trash, right? Cleans up the mess of the consumers. So do you get this? This is everywhere. I, I, have, I have like begun to scratch the surface of apocalyptic pictures, but I want you to begin to see that these kinds of narratives that we share are deeply embedded into our culture. And the fears that we share about the future are a part of who we are. And so when we think about those pictures, we're not meant to necessarily just enjoy the possibility of, I don't know, being controlled by the Matrix or being controlled or attacked by some crazy Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking robot. Like that, that's crazy and it scares us, but it's meant to kind of start our questioning about what we're doing now. When Jesus says that something is coming, he wants us to know that there is something going on and we're supposed to think twice about now. You see, we are supposed to be on guard so that we are not deceived, nor are we anxious about the end times. Not only that, but since we don't know the exact moment, we also, we, excuse me, although we do not know the exact moment when this will happen, we do know with certainty that Jesus will come again, and therefore we must be alert. So stop for just a moment. When you begin to dig into this, it, you're not only meant to start to parse out the possible details of the return of Jesus, because as Jesus warns us here, that could be something that's ultimately used to deceive and to mislead people. But instead, it's meant to spark our awareness and our imagination of what we ought to be doing and believing now if Jesus is really coming back. So yeah, if you really believe that the reality that's being proposed by, say, Mad Max is that like, our war over oil will take over and destroy the world, then yes, like, don't spend money at tractor pulls and race, like, like car races, right? There's a sense in which you should, you should all, we should all be driving hybrids. If we really believe that's a reality, it will change what we really do. Now, here's the catch. We don't really believe that, do we? We don't really believe consumerism is that dangerous. It's not near as dangerous as Wally makes it out to be. Because if we really believe that reality, it would change the way we act now. It would change what we believe about what we face in the present. So let these words of Jesus kind of shake you and shock you and begin to stir your imagination for a possible reality where Jesus returns according to, we, as we saw from Revelation 19 to 21, he comes back as a conquering king with the blood of his slain enemies staining his own garments with a mark across his thigh that says he is Lord of Lords. This is happening and that is meant for us to stir up all sorts of thoughts about what it is that we're doing now. Notice there's a lot of second-person plural. You do this. You do this. Hortatory in nature, not necessarily revelatory in nature. That is, Jesus isn't necessarily trying to reveal to you all of the secrets of the future. Instead, he's meant, this is meant for, to be an encouragement. So when they first walk out, one of his disciples looks up at the temple, what would have been the largest edifice at that particular time in the city of Jerusalem. So let's run through a little bit of a history here to realize what's going on. They said, look at this. And Jesus says, 
You see the works of human beings. You see the works of man. You marvel at what human beings can do. And he says a prophetic, powerful, a, a prophetic and powerful word. This thing that you think is amazing, these contraptions and works of human beings will one day be destroyed. Right? Did you catch that in those films? Even Wally? The things that you value now will one day go away. The things that you're putting your hope and trust in now will one day fail. It is guaranteed by Jesus. But then he responds at the end of the passage. Did you catch that? Even though the works of man will fall away, the words of Jesus will never pass away, according to verse 31. Heaven, earth, and everything in them will fall away. But the words of Jesus, mind you, the words of good news, of redemption and restoration will not go anywhere. So we loosen our grip on the things that we see. You see, what really happened to the temple is an interesting story. About a thousand years before Jesus would have said this, Solomon would have built the first temple. At that particular time, according to Ecclesiastes, according to 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, like, this is one of the most powerful regimes of the time, the most powerful empire, and they built one of the most magnificent and majestic edifices ever seen, namely the temple. Now, side note here, after Solomon built the most beautiful temple in the world, he built his palace, and he built it bigger and better than the temple. This is foreshadowing for what happens, but this temple is destroyed a few hundred years later. It's tried, the, the, the Israel, this chosen people, or try to rebuild it a few times. It gets destroyed again, until finally it's rebuilt to the state that we find Jesus here. And it, it wouldn't have been all as majestic as it was as it once was when Solomon built it, but it would have been close. It certainly would have been the biggest, most notable attraction or structure in the city of Jerusalem. So when these people walk out and they say, look, Jesus, at what we built, isn't it amazing? Jesus says, no, it's not amazing. In fact, it's going to fall apart. He's talking about something that happens in the year 70 AD or the year 70 CE, namely that the Jews anger the Romans so much that the Romans completely and utterly destroy the temple destroy it. And for those people, all the things that they held sacred were utterly defiled. The words in verse 14, Jesus says, look, there'll be an abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Namely, the first layer, someone is going to come and try to defile this temple. Someone is going to come and, and do the most abominable, the most hate-worthy, right? The most hate-worthy thing that will lead to desolation, namely destruction, right? If you, that's why I showed you Mad Max. If you don't know what desolation is, Google Mad Max. That's, this is picture of desolation, this, this desolate, arid place where everything is gone. And when that happens as a result of defilement, then, then you'll realize something is coming. This is a phrase that comes right out of Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. A scandal that would come about that would profane and defile Jerusalem's temple. That same phrase is used in one of the apocryphal books, 1 Maccabees, to describe how Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed all that the Jews held dear. In fact, one of the pictures of, that this might be of is after this time, the Syrian general uh, that took over some of the Jews in 168 B.C., he came in and he erected an altar to Zeus inside the temple. And you know how fun this guy was. He, he, he set up an altar inside the temple and he began to burn offerings of pigs. So there's this picture of what is absolutely abominable coming to pass in the place that to them seemed the most sacred. The thing that they held the most dearly was on its way out and a time was coming when the most sacred thing that they had would be destroyed and it would be utterly defiled. 
It says people would run, people would scatter, people would go. And we are meant then to be on our guard. To be on our guard about what we hold dear. To be on our guard about the things that take place. 1 Thessalonians puts it this way, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Here's what this means for us. Whatever you are holding dearly and tightly to is probably on its way out. And if you were to ask yourself, what is it that if I lost it would cause me the most devastation? Can I warn you, not because I want you to be afraid. In fact, I want you to be the opposite. I want you to be aware and without fear. But I want to tell you that that thing that you're now currently finding your identity that is not God and what he's created you to be is on its way to destruction. It's on its way out. One day it will, whatever it may be, probably be a prime candidate for the third layer below the surface in some landfill somewhere. So we're meant to hold to these things loosely. You see, this is kind of the second half of the first warning he gave last week. He said to the scribes, you you exalt yourself, you make yourself to be special, therefore distancing yourself from people, And you carry around symbols that don't endear you to people, but they separate you from people. These things that people would walk around as symbols and say, I'm really important, you should honor me. And those things that you think are really important, the things that those scribes thought were important, the things that these people thought were really important, are on their way out. And days are coming that will overwhelm. Here's what I think this means for us. If there's a symbol that I think carries over from that chapter to this, it would be this. There's something I hear in our culture on a regular basis that I think, I think what Jesus is trying to say ends up maybe hopefully undermining as an idol and, and showing that there's something better. You see, we're very, very proud of the fact that we have our hands full. Jesus says, look, one day something's going to come. It's going to happen. And it's going to overwhelm you. You will not know what to do. You will be overwhelmed by the circumstances in which you find yourself. But You will be marked by your culture, not by simply being overwhelmed in the midst of it, but instead by standing firm, trusting in me, not being deceived, and being watchful in the midst of the turmoil. Did you catch that? The people who trust that this thing that's happening is temporary will be the ones that Jesus, and I hate to use these words in a way that might hurt your feelings, has chosen, has elected to save. So therefore, their salvation isn't in what they do, the works of their own hands, any more than the, than the salvation takes place for this temple by the works of human hands, but instead it's rooted and grounded in the promise of God. You are not special because you think Jesus is awesome. You are special because Jesus died for you in your place to give you all that you now hold. So when we come along and say that we have some special standing because we're overwhelmed, I think we do something that might need to be confessed as sin. So here's this phrase I hear on a regular basis. I hear it all the time. I'm busy. I'm busy. And for us, I think like the scribes, we think that's a word of honor. We think that makes us important. But I don't know if you caught this. The people who are overwhelmed by what's going on are not special. They are not special. They are not the ones who endure. 
Here's what I think. If we wear it as a badge of honor, we're actually identifying with the turmoil and the, I, would, I mean, I don't know, the confusion, the chaos that defines the world as Jesus describes it for us. So just be careful. When you say, I'm out of control or I'm too busy, I mean, I've already heard this. Like, we're talking about summer. Hey, what do you got going on this summer? And I hear some of you, and I, I worry about you're already like, oh my goodness, we got so much going on this summer. And it hasn't even started, and it's already overwhelmed you. Here's what I think is wrong. You probably think you're saying something that makes you feel special and important because you've got lots of stuff to do, but what you're really confessing is that you're failing at Sabbath. You are failing to find your rest in God. You are failing to see your life in light of the rhythm that God means to unfold for you, not only in the Ten Commandments, but even in Jesus' practice of the Sabbath. After all, no one practiced the Sabbath more faithfully than Jesus. The Sabbath that is to come, he spent in the grave. And yet we don't think that that time he spent in the grave is a waste, do we? We think that that time he spent in the grave is a time that leads to great victory. So also for us, beware. If you're overwhelmed by what's going on, you're not special. Stop wearing it as a badge of honor. It may not be a badge of honor, but instead it may be a sin you need to confess. Because the people of God, the elect, the chosen of God in this future chaotic reality are not marked by their own confusion and chaos that seems to mark their context. They are marked by trusting in God in midst of the nonsense. They are noticeable because they are the ones that trust that this is but a phase. This is but a season. Friend, do not be misled. Be awake. Do not be overwhelmed. Start saying no to things. Let go of things. It may be the thing that causes us to see that God is really in control. And if you don't believe me, what would the people who had put their hope in the temple have thought about their life in 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans? You see, God is showing us an alternate reality that if we're not careful, we'll be deceived by, we'll be sucked in by. And the works of men will pass away. The works of men that overwhelm us. In this case, the works of men to take over country over country, kingdom over kingdom, a tribulation that's on its way. And the persecution can be expected. You're not special because you have a hard life. In fact, that just means you are alive. It is the chosen and elect of God that see the hard life as but a context in which the gospel emerges. Did you catch that? Things will start to fall apart. You'll be turned over to councils. You'll be turned over to per persecuted. But don't worry, in verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to the nations. So friend, are you overwhelmed to the point where you have no possible view of how the gospel can be proclaimed amidst your context? then be careful. You are the person Jesus is talking to. Because the desolation that comes 70 years later after Jesus comes is meant to be one layer of an image of that desolation that is on its way into our broken and fallen world. We are not the people who get caught up in it. We are the people who see Jesus as the ultimate affirmation, as the ultimate consummation of this creation. John chapter 2 puts it this way. The disciples began to remember that 
the Old Testament said that the zeal for your house would consume me. So when Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple, they asked him, the Jews said, what sign do you want to show me or give to me? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, wait, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're saying you'll raise it up in three days? But John chapter 2 tells us what in verse 21? He was speaking about the temple of his body. So then when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And then they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So did you catch that? In the midst of the desolation, in the midst of the destruction that's on its way, they were meant to be reminded that Jesus is ultimately sovereign. Because Jesus ultimately is the better temple. 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way, flee from sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, like destroying and defiling his own body. Why is that important, you would say? What does it matter that you destroy your own body? Verse 19 says it this way, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom was within you, whom you have heard, excuse me, who have been received from God? You are not your own You were bought with a price, so now therefore glorify God in your body. Do you get this now? Do you see the layers of the apocalyptic language? It's not just a building that gets destroyed. It's not just a sacred space that gets defiled. But instead, it's your life and mine that is defiled by sin, destroyed, utterly desolate. And then finally, it's Jesus, who just like the temple is thrown down, who just like the temple is conquered by an outside force. Friend, hear the good news. The thing that we are called to believe in light of this. Even though tough days lie ahead, and those days we are not meant to find our comfort or our treasure in, but as they are coming, we know that our God has succeeded. That the desolation that's coming is nowhere close to being comparable to the desolation that Jesus experienced when he was betrayed and thrown out by his own people. And friend, just as Jesus conquered over the persecution, the turmoil, the abomination, the defilement and the desolation and destruction that he wore in his own body, so too you and I being united with Christ will endure. And instead of falling and being destroyed like the rest of the world, an amazing thing will happen. God will demonstrate his mercy and grace as we endure this suffering faithfully looking to a future where Jesus returns to restore all things. Well, things are tough. Beware. Don't think that you're seeing something special. The enemy's greatest tactic for you is for you to believe like you're the only one that's messed up. I don't know if you've ever been a victim of this. Like, I'm the only one who's jacked up. Everybody else has got a great life but me. Have you ever been there? For those of you who are single, it's like everybody gets married around you, and there's this kind of overwhelming feeling, oh my goodness, everyone is married. No, they're not. But the enemy makes you think that. People that are married, you know what this is like, right? Well, everyone's got a happy marriage but me. Look how happy those people are. And the enemy begins to deceive you and show you, like, no, you're, you're really messed up. Friend, don't think that that's special. According to this prophecy, the brokenness that exists in the world is part of being in the world. And if that really bothers you, beware, you're probably being deceived by the enemy or you're worshiping an idol. If you think that the difficulty that is coming about is special for you, beware. 
you're deceived. Instead, they are just like birth pains. And while they are the greatest pain, this is an appropriate, a week from Mother's Day to, to say, they are the greatest pain, no argument here, that a human being can endure, they also bring about the greatest thing in this entire world, namely, every single one of you that I'm looking at right now. And while the greatest pain borne by your mother, known to humanity, was difficult and probably seemed impossible to endure, it also birthed out one of the most beautiful things ever. And what comes from sin is reborn in righteousness. So the last warning Jesus says, he says, don't believe someone who gives you a date. Did you get that? Even Jesus doesn't know the date. So here's, here's what I want to challenge you with. Uh, we get to laugh at this because every once in a while somebody like publishes the end of the world at this particular time, right? And, it, and people, uh, you're like, no, I don't really believe it. But in the back of your head, you're like, maybe, maybe, I don't know, right? Y2K, uh, or I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses are famous for this. They always have like a prominent guy stand up and go, no, this is when it's going to happen. And then it doesn't. And we're meant to laugh because we're meant to think this is, this is deception. If you believe it, you're buying into something that isn't real. No one really knows. When it happens, apparently, you'll know. Like when it happens, you won't miss it. No one will have to tell you. But instead, I think, of arguing for a specific date, what I would say most of us who would do, if you're a Christian in this room, this is what I'm going to challenge you. You probably don't believe an actual date that Jesus is coming back, but you have set a date. And do you know how I know? You have no urgency for the gospel to go to the nations. Oh, you've set a date. And your date is not anytime soon. Ever been there? Ever been given a task? And it's like so far out that you do nothing? You ever been that? The boss gives you, hey, do this. It's, it's due in two months. And in the back of your head, you go, well, there's the date. I guess I can do nothing until the night before. Ever been there? That's human nature. And so here's what I know. On one hand, we're saying, even as I tell you this, Jesus is coming back. I get it. Some of you are like, really? Is he really coming back? Beware. You have set a date. You have in your own mind set a date. And the date is not anytime soon. And therefore, you have no urgency. And I want to warn you, out of one side of your mouth, you're saying there is no date. And therefore, you are under judgment. And you need to beware. Be alert. Wake up, literally. The master's coming back. And if he finds you sleeping, he will be angry. But if he finds you ready to receive him, there's something like a, like a, a friendship and a bond that takes place. There's like a familial greeting that will take place. And so Jesus says, wake up. Out of one side of your mouth, you're saying that Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. But at the other side of your mouth, you may be just saying, Jesus is coming back. And therefore, you're using it as an idol to find your comfort in. And the truth is, if you're not careful, you'll only use Jesus to feed your own apathy. You'll only use Jesus so that you can sleep easy at night. And you can go about your business being overwhelmed by the world. Friend, Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Let the possibility of this future shape the way you see what you do today. Let us throw off our reliance and trust on things that ultimately will fall apart and let us see how good God will be that he will demonstrate his grace for us, not by pulling us out of persecution, but allowing us to be a shining light in the midst of it. Let us wake up. Let us not be deceived. Jesus is on his way back. And it begs the question then, 
What is the most important thing about our future? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Uh, we have no right. We have no right to it. We have no, no ability to feel entitled to it. Uh, but instead, we simply receive that mercy as a gift. Uh, we thank you so much for at least giving us a glimpse into the future. But God, I confess that even if I were to be just completely honest, I, I'm not sure if I really believe it's going to happen. And there's part of me that just wants to kind of dissect this and pretend like it's not real. God, would we begin to confess that as sin? Uh, we are placing ourselves above you. We are in essence saying that we know better than you. And when we would rather be apathetic or busy or lazy or procrastinate, God, we're, we're actually exalting ourselves as God. And we're actually telling you that we know better than you. Would you begin to undermine that sentiment in us? Or would you begin to stir up in us a, a holy and, and righteous expectation that as things begin to fall apart, instead of falling apart with them, we would be encouraged and reminded those things have no ability to save us anyway. When we realize that we've falsely put our trust in those things, we begin to see you as the culmination of reality for us. God, for those of us in this room, maybe we, we don't believe this, and this, this, this picture of Jesus being great and mighty and majestic seems just too difficult to believe. Would you begin to open our eyes to the possibility that deeply rooted in us is an awareness that something is on its way, something great. And God, we see glimpses of it in little silly things like Wally or apocalyptic movies, but God, would you begin to show us and open our eyes that there's, there's a reality from which that stems. There is a greater thing that you are doing. There is a new birth, a new kingdom. Would we begin to open our eyes to it and receive it as a coming king and a coming kingdom? For those of us that know this good news, we've just begun to, we've begun to sleep, we've begun to be deceived, and we really think it's not a big deal. God, stir up in us an excitement. Stir up in us a, an enthusiasm and a holy zeal that we would want people to know not to be afraid, not to be in, in torment over the future, but instead to know that their future is secure in Jesus. Would, be, would we be renewed in our passion that our future is not dictated by uh, the culture around us and however good or bad it may feel that it is, but our future is secure in the victory of Jesus. Let us celebrate this. Let us do this publicly. In Jesus' name, amen.